antiquarian adventures in meta reality reality witchcraft wonder camera and weirdness episode 2 a museum of magic and folklore in west cornwall We're looking out across the bay. On the right hand side, we can see, I guess it's sort of heading on towards the lizard. And on the left hand side, we can see Fraggle Rock, St. Anthony's, and ahead is a stretch of water that's known as Morgoire's Mile. There's no sea monsters out there today, though. You know, you know when you walk around here, don't you? It's never, it's never the same twice. You know when you walk around here, don't you? It's never, it's never the same twice. You know when you walk around here, don't you? It's never the same twice. Works. Oh my lord, we're, we're, we're approaching the entrance here. Almost looks Victorian. There's this very grand bridge where presumably there would have been some kind of drawbridge before. It's granite arches. This sort of grand entrance with a sort of rob, uh, sort of a nod towards the, the Romanesque going on here. Layers of architecture and uses. Interesting things about this place. The castle, as we recognise it now, was first built under Henry VIII. Some, so one could assume that when the person bought it, it was as an investment or had something in mind, it's quite likely that it was here. The name of the headland of Falmouth Pendennis suggests that it was once some kind of prehistoric earthwork enclosure. But the Falmouth we see now is by no means an ancient town like its neighbour Penryn even though it has one of the deepest natural harbours in the world. It was only sparsely inhabited until the time of the Tudors, when two great changes occurred, which suddenly brought this uninhabited bog at the foot of a great sweeping granite moorland into focus. Firstly, the threat of the Spanish invasion, which precipitated the building of two great castles, one at Pendennis and one across the waters in St Moors. 
And secondly, in an incredibly short period of time, Britain went from being a land-loving nation that, apart from a bit of inshore fishing, had very little interest in the sea, into one of the greatest maritime nations on the earth. Falmouth seemed to be an ideal place to set sail into the newly opening up west. Thus, the maritime town of Falmouth was born. Falmouth, however, has never been a naval town. Its seafaring has always leaned towards the world of the privateer and the freebooters. It also, most significantly, became the base for the packet ships, whose trade was primarily that most valuable of cargoes, information. They were the first international postal service. It was said that Falmouth also once had its own cabinet of curiosities, filled with curios brought back from the ships that sailed the Seven Seas. Sadly, little about it is known, and none of its contents remain. Though as with the spirit of Cates the Gull, the old sea witch of Penryn, something of the shadow of this semi-mythical cabinet of curiosities seems to remain, ready to re-emerge once it is given the right conditions. Falmouth became not only a multicultural community, which included one of the first and largest Jewish communities in Britain since the expulsion of the Jews under Henry III in the 13th century, but also a hub of free thinkers and non-conformists. One great mind who lived in Falmouth was the mineralogist and folklorist Robert Hunt, who in the mid-19th century, in the twilight of the old folk traditions, collected the most extensive collection of Cornish folklore ever. He collected these into a book known as the Popular Romances of the West of England. He was also a collector, being appointed the Keeper of Mine Records, and after his death a museum of mineral samples was established which was now part of the school of mines now there's a blue plaque on the gate of his old house just off the moor in the middle of falmouth which puzzlingly but somewhat predictably makes no mention of him being a folklorist at all the fortunes of falmouth ebbs and flowed as did its cultural life and by the end of the 18th century, the age of sail had all but gone, and so did Falmouth's usefulness as a port. Eventually the railway arrived, too late for the cargo from the sea, but in time to bring a new wave of incomers here in the form of tourists. The Great Western Railway commenced a great campaign publicising the folklore and antiquities of Cornwall. This land was also being promoted as one of the last outposts of the Celts. The numinous magic of Cornwall once again found another mantle to wear. 
with the founding of the art college in Falmouth, a new wave of crazy creative folk came into town. And in 1970s, there was something of a golden era of surrealism and magic around Falmouth. Nationally renowned surrealist poet Peter Redgrove became the principal of Falmouth Art College, openly writing of his own brand of Jungian, tantric, shamanic and highly sexualised pagan magic. Surrealist Tony Doc Shields baffled our senses of reality and summoned up sea monsters and the owl man of Mornan from the vasty deeps. Stepping back in time again, whilst Falmouth was still on its uphill climb towards maritime prowess and Penryn was still fighting its corner, in the mid-17th century a Penryn man by the name of Peter Mundy set sail on a seven-year voyage passing through Spain, the Levant and India. Later he joined the East India Company sailing from the Baltic to China. In his journeys he kept extensive journals telling of the strange and unknown lands through which he passed. Although his writings remain, it is unknown as to whether he brought back any treasure back with him or had a collection of his own though in his travels through Britain he recorded that he visited John Tredescant's Museum of Curiosities in Lambeth, which was known as the Ark. Such was its size that it was said that it would take a whole day to peruse. Peter Mundy commented in his journals that he was almost persuaded that in one day a man might behold and collect in one place more curiosities than he should see if he spent his whole life in travels. This is a telling statement in several ways. It's interesting to note that Peter Mundy considered the artefacts to be inextricably linked to the exotic places from which they came. For him, it was the journey and the travel that gave them context and meaning. Whereas in this new environment of the confines of the cabinet of curiosities, they took on a whole new life. The onlooker passed these objects of wonder encased in wood and glass. And if they choose to alter their level of perception and open their minds to a world of possibilities, then they too could embark upon an inner journey. The display of magical objects has always been a tricky thing. Even to this day, one sees artefacts on display in museums which are clearly magical objects, mislabeled or hidden away. It never ceases to amaze me that in these supposedly enlightened times, many curators still seem bound by some anachronistic feeling of superstition or religiously motivated suspicion. When not feared or despised, the material culture of magic is often regarded as an irrelevance or an embarrassing relic of an ignorant past. Though sometimes I feel curators don't quite know what to do with them, as due to the artefacts' liminal nature, they don't seem to fit into any particular accepted category of intellectual inquiry. In very recent times, however, a growth of interest in the architectural archaeology has seen a surge in interest in the material culture of magical practice, especially in regards to the apotropaic markings, more commonly known as witch marks. Academics, archaeologists and curators alike seem to be at last turning their attention to this much maligned and ignored aspect of our history. 
With the growth of interest in folklore and ethnology at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, public exhibitions of magical objects began to emerge. We see the Clark Collection, which is still in existence, though not in display, in the Scarborough Museum. And this was much influenced by the William Lovett Collection, again at the beginning of the 20th century. And he ran a series of high-profile exhibitions of magical objects in London. His collection, however, seems to have been dissipated out into the world, though much found its way to the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, which also hosts a fine collection of magical artefacts, including the savagely sculptural Yorkshire witch posts and the moody and enigmatic witch's ladder. Some of Lovett's collection found its way into the Boscastle Witchcraft Museum and into the Horniman Museum in South London, which too has an extensive collection of magical objects but they, too, are also sadly locked away in the vaults. I was once, however, very privileged to spend a joyous afternoon several years ago sifting through the treasures of the Horniman Museum. The founder of the Horniman Museum, a tea merchant and Quaker, Frederick Horniman, in 1895 was also the Liberal MP for Flushing, Penryn and Falmouth. And in 1900, he bought an ornamental garden bedecked with a granite trilithon, and the, the garden was known as the Summerlands. He bought this from the eccentric Reverend Coop. The Reverend Coop was a Tractarian. He was very influenced by the Oxford movement, and he was on a, on a mission to bring back the mystical elements of the medieval high church to Cornwall. Another contemporary Tractarian in Cornwall with a taste for the antiquarian and the arcane who we've already visited was the Reverend Stephen Hawker of Morwenstow. Anyway, after acquiring the gardens, he donated the gardens to Falmouth Town Council, where it still stands today as the Gillingdune Gardens. And one wonders whether Horniman's daughter, Annie Horniman, who was very much a key member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, whether she ever came to Falmouth and spent time in these gardens with this enigmatic trilithon of stone, which still stands today in its grotto and the, the strange chapel that looks out over the waters. In Cornwall, we're privileged to have the Cecil William collection, which still is very much alive and kicking and under the curatorship of Simon Costin in the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle. Mr Williamson had been studying witchcraft for the most part of the 20th century and being a non-academic and something of a maverick in his approach, he was one of the few people to actually go out and to gather objects and information from his practitioners in the dying days of that venerable old tradition of the wayside witch. The collection has far from stood still. Both Mr Costin and the previous curator, Graham King, have both continued to expand and develop the collection. Another man who was collecting at the same time as Williamson, and also he lived not far away in East Cornwall in Callington, though curiously the two men never seem to have met. It was a man by the name of William Painter, Mr Painter was a bard of the Gulseth, and unlike Williamson, who almost certainly went native, remained very much an observer. Though, to be fair, William Painter did make a certain amount of money from selling uh, charms, which he called the Hapdar charms, 
and um, love charms, which involved um, dragon's blood, which again was a traditional Cornish charm. But William Painter very much took uh, more of a folkloric view of of magic than, than Cecil Williamson. And he established a museum in Loo in the 1950s in East Cornwall. Um, now the historian and curator Jason Simmons has gathered together and published much of a painter's writings. But sadly, again, his collection, which was housed in the museum in Loo, which had many sort of magical artefacts in it, seems to have disappeared. It's July 2021. I'm in the Maritime Museum in Falmouth and the Maritime Museum here. It's a hugely funded uh, museum in a great purpose-built building. And it's, um, it's, it's a museum of small sailing craft, really, but um, it's quite niche. But um, it seems to enjoy incredible patronage. It's... Um, but they do have some very interesting visiting displays and at the moment they have downstairs they've got a wonderful display called creatures of the deep which is looking at uh, sea monsters and the ideas of sea monsters it goes from the world of the mythical to the strange creatures that appear quite naturally in our inner waters it's a it's, it's great and upstairs we've got victor wins unnatural history museum now, of course, Victor Wynne has a permanent display in Mare Street in Hackney, London. It's a very darkly gothic, decadent display. It's, uh, it's, it's fantastic in its own way. And here I'm just entering this, uh, this uh, satellite display he's got here down in sunny Falmouth in Cornwall. And as I enter, there's his usual signature taxidermy displays. And there's a great picture of Victor Wynne himself and he says there's an inscription here saying is Victor Wynne's Unnatural History Museum it's got underneath it museums are instruments for telling stories and for considering commenting on and enjoying the condition humane in exactly the same way as novels, pictures, operas, films and other creative endeavours to me the objects of my museum are my words my tubes of paint, graphite, pencil tips bassoons, oboes, flutes or violins museums tell different stories at different times to different people today this is my museum telling my story to you Victor Wind and I'm walking in here and there's a, a story of Victor Wind narrating an old Irish folk tale and a great skeleton of a uh, unicorn in front of me a giant's thigh bone on the wall and all manner of stories and curios <laughs> Victor Wynne's Museum of Unnatural History. There's a number of other folk museums around Cornwall with all kinds of gems hidden away. The Penryn Museum has a fine stone bearing apotropaic markings from, from the excavations of Glasney College. Helston Museum is like a TARDIS inside, stretching back for several galleries and it's brimming with so many artefacts of, of material folk culture. They have a fine Bellamin jar, which they found deposited in a well. They have a curious 
egg stone with which is said to have certain pagan connotations to it and an absolutely incredible mini cabinet of curiosities containing such gems as hindu idols leaves from the garden of gethsemane and a boar's tooth found in a drain in camborne the folk museum in padstow has a wonderful kenning stone which was used by the old pellers or white witches as a means of, of healing, especially eye complaints. And one, one must not forget the county museum in Truro, which, amongst other treasures, has a fine archaeological section and a wonderful painting of Tamsin Bly, the witch of Helston, the, the old witch of the West. A collection is an emanation of the mind of a particular collector in a particular time and place, riding upon the fickle winds of inspiration and curiosity. In the same way in which it can be conjured up from what is seemingly nothing, so it may disappear like the morning mist. It doesn't seem to matter how many trusts or provisions are put in place. A collection or a museum only lives as long as someone wills it to live. In recent years, I've seen the Zena Folk Museum disappear without a trace, and also the wonderful Edwardian collection of the Potter's Museum on Bodmin Moor, scattered to the four winds. I'm in possession of an old display cabinet from the Potter's Museum, and in the same way that a story left unfinished is somehow sadder than a story that's never been told. So there's something unutterably melancholic about an empty display cabinet. Several years ago I was taking part in an exhibition in the semi-derelict old library of the Plymouth artist Robert Lenkovitz. Even though he had passed away some years ago, the relics of his life lay scattered about as if he had just walked out the room. There was something of the atmosphere of the Mary Celeste about the place. Under a pile of boxes I found the old coffin he used to display the skeleton of the old witch Ursula Kemp. Now, no one there really knew what it was or had any interest in it. And like the display case from the Potter's Museum, it just lay there, silently gathering memories. Like the fairies of Peter Pan, a museum only exists if we believe in it. If one learns nothing else from the great public, folkloric celebrations of which Cornwall is so blessed, from the hurling to the Padstow Obios, Helston's Flora Day, Maisie Day, the Midsummer Fires, the, the Crying the Neck and the countless other local festivities, both ancient and modern. It is the fact that we are in a continual rhythm of decay and renewal. Forgetfulness fades seamlessly into memory and melancholy into joy. And so accordingly, the museum is both a memento mori and a celebration of the sheer visceral pleasure of being. It was said that the origins of the Wunderkammer or the Cabinet of Curiosities in the 16th and 17th century lay in the reliquaries which held the sacred relics of the medieval church. An artifact, like a relic, is not just an object of curiosity, it is an embodiment of a story and it is quite literally a vessel brimming with psychic potential. They both are an expression of a greater whole and both hold the potential for transformation. 
It is also well worth considering that the power of a relic lays not just in the fact that it is something we look upon, it is said to be something that also looks upon us. Cecil Williamson spoke of a museum as a spider's web that gathered more artefacts and information as it went along. I used this method for the acquisition of objects and magic. I avoided the internet or auctions or eBay or the other usual channels of acquisition which so often prize the object from its story. But by building up psychic pressure I allowed the artefacts to come to me. It's a much slower but much more authentic process. So when the individual artefacts are placed together in some kind of cohesive pattern, the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. And this is especially evident when dealing with objects of magic. A kind of elemental numinous space is conjured into being. A space we physically move within and pass through. This numinous space does not only have the potential to be transformative on an individual level. As I have observed in Boss Castle, it can also become a kind of spirit house for the genie locus, the spirit of that place. At the time of writing, the artefacts have been gathered and the conjuration of the museum has begun. It's a completely independent, unfunded project, but I do owe a great debt of gratitude to the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle. Not only has it allowed me to have intimate contact with the most comprehensive collection of magical artefacts in the world, it has also given me 25 years of experience of seeing how a museum is run. I have had great support in this project from Simon Costin, the curator of the uh, Witchcraft Museum in Boscastle, who has even donated a number of old cabinets from the museum. And a number of artefacts came from Graham King in the museum in the mid-90s, including the now legendary Witch's Cradle, which, with the help of a local blacksmith, has now been brought back into being. I intend to weave together the threads of magic and folklore and the landscape into a twisted skein, an exhibition that not only conveys something of the spirit of the landscape of the Far West, but also something of the ways of magic. By the time this is broadcast, the Museum of Magic and Folklore, West Cornwall, will be up and running in the vaults beneath the Cornish Bank in the centre of Falmouth for the duration of the summer of 2021 in its first incarnation. My motto is as ever, certum est quia impossible est. It's so strange, it must be true. Well, welcome, welcome everybody. Welcome to the opening of the Museum of magic and folklore and yeah thank you all so much for coming along um it's been a strange year and a half as we all know but it feels like at the moment we're we're emerging at the moment and things are starting to change and move on and things are starting to come to fruition 
I mean, for a start, we've got this absolutely fantastic venue here that Will and Rufus have got together. It's a, um, and it's a wonderful old building. It goes back to about 1771. It was the old Cornish Bank. Um, don't know much about the bank. Apparently it crashed spectacularly in the late 19th century, bringing down a lot of the Cornish old Cornish families with them. But um, it's been used for all sorts of purposes over the years. Um, there's council buildings before it was here. But um, one of the wonderful things about this building is it has old bank vaults. Underneath here are the old bank vaults. And it has the original brickwork and the original ironwork. And that's absolutely fantastic. It's the fantastic space down here. And this, of course, is the space I'm starting up, the Museum of Magic and Folklore. Now, this is initially a pop-up project. It's going to be going for about a couple of months. But hopefully, this is going to be the precursor of a permanent museum in Falmouth or around this area. And hopefully, the museum's going to have an open access library and it's going to host events and uh, can only see it expanding. But in a way, what we have today, this display is very much a microcosm of things to come. Now, the whole story of this museum started, you know, some years ago, back in the 80s, I worked in the Perrinporth Folk Museum, and, and in the mid-90s, I got involved with the uh, Museum of Witchcraft and, uh, and Magic up in Boscastle. Um, and, but over the years, there's other kinds of strands have, 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 have got involved in what, what I'm doing today. Uh, again, in the early noughties, I set up the Helston Antiquarian and Arcane Society, which is a, an umbrella of a lot of talks and workshops and goings on about subjects antiquarian and arcane. And I wanted to bring together different ideas about the esoteric and earth mysteries and folklore and local history. And this, this, expand, this idea expanded, and I started developing... Uh, more creative projects. I started up the uh, Tarot and the Creative Imagination project in Penryn. And this again got a group of artists together working with the Tarot as a means of um, expanding creative ideas. And the idea behind this was I was fascinated by the interface between creativity and magic. Again, this expanded again. And this led on to the Ancient Scent project, which was a project we set up in... Uh, uh, Lamorna down in West Cornwall and this we were very inspired by the work of the artist Ethel Cahoon and she was an occultist and she was a surrealist an artist and I was very interested in the way she mixed together ideas of landscape magic and surrealism so we experimented using our experimental techniques actually in the valley actually drawing on the spirit of the land down there in this this developed and we started a similar project round here, the uh, River of Antre project. We're again working with the landscape down here. Now, through all these different projects, four strands seem to emerge. Landscape, art, magic and folklore. And at the centre of this crossroads, it, I felt there to be a nodal point, and this is a point of transformation, and this is also a point of manifestation, and this is what this museum is about. Anyway, two years ago, I first started thinking about this idea of a um, museum here in Falmouth. Um, 
I mooted the idea with a few people. I mentioned it to Simon Costin up in, uh, who runs the Museum of Witchcraft and, and, and Magic up in Boscastle. And he just looked at me as if it was the most obvious, natural and doable idea in the world. And he also said, yeah, I've got a load of old cabinets I need to get rid of. And so sure enough, we loaded up the car and the van with all sorts of cabinets. And, uh, and this is how the whole thing started. And I started looking around at venues around town. I, start, I looked at three very, very good venues, but everything seemed to fall away from me. Uh, I, I, I couldn't get any of the venues at all. And then suddenly the COVID struck and the uh, lockdown began. Now, I was so lucky, if I'd have, if I'd have signed a lease sort of back then, I'd, be, I'd have been absolutely shafted. Uh, but I didn't. And I, this is interesting because through the whole project, I've always felt there's a, some kind of guiding hand. Through the Ancient Scent Project, when we were working with, 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 with the work of Ithel Cahoon, we called this the Hand of Ithel because we felt there was a spirit of Ithel Cahoon leading us along. And while I've been working on this, I've, I've always felt the presence of old Cecil Williamson, the old uh, man who started the Boss Castle Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, who's no longer with us. I always felt his hand, and I've got, I've got to call this a hand of Ithel. Uh, uh, sorry, a hand of Cecil. And um, there has been an astonishing number of tiny little synchronicities and coincidences and things that have been pushing me along and helping things, helping things move along. Anyway, the, so the lockdown came, and of course this, this was impossible to do. I started working on a podcast, Antiquarian Adventures in Meta-Reality, which again sort of work, working with these ideas. Um, anyway, this summer, like I said, the uh, beginning of the summer, um, Rufus and Will started working on this place, um, um, offered me the use of the vault, and, 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 and here we are. Now... It's all very well to think about things, but when you actually start making things, it actually forces your hand. Uh, one has to nail one's colours to the mask when one actually starts creating something. And that's a very much ask myself, what is a museum? Now, a museum has a number of functions. It's a repository of artefacts, and in one way, it's a research facility. And um, you've got to look back to the old museums, like, um, the Natural History Museum and the Science Museum. They were there very much for people as a resource for research. Going back even further, though, the purpose behind a museum gets more esoteric as we look at it. It's look at the old cabinets of curiosity of the 16th and 17th centuries. There they were almost, they were collections of objects. They were assemblages. They were an outward manifestation of our ideas and our beliefs. That's what they, that's what they were all about. If you look at the word museum, the museum comes from the old temple of the Muses in ancient Alexandria. And this was where all the scrolls and the texts were kept. And it was supposed to be the biggest library in the world back 2,000 years ago. And of course it was the temple of the Muses. And the Muses were the goddesses of inspiration. So this is the heart of the museum. It's all about ideas. It's all about inspiration. Now, also, I mean, there's other strands that sort of fed into it. I remember my early days when I uh, um, 
and went to the Museum of Witchcraft in Boscastle. The thing that struck me was not so much the individual artefacts, but the space. The space I walked into, it felt like a liminal space. It felt like a numinous space. It felt like a transformative space. Just going into this space, somehow I felt I came out different at the end of it. And it almost had a tangible field behind it. And this is something I have tried to perpetrate, tried to, tried to, tried to create this idea of a, a numinous transformative space. And the place of the artefacts in this is that they are an integral part of this space. Old Cecil Williamson, he, said, he, he commented that uh, being in, walking through a museum is like being in a cinema. The only difference is, is the objects are still and it's us who moves. So as we move through, as we physically move through the space, it, the objects appear to move. But also as we think about the objects, as we perceive the objects, they conceptually begin to move and transform and morph. And this, a very dynamic relationship starts to emerge between us and the objects in a museum. Now, I, I'm very aware of the, you know, a museum should be a multi-sensory kind of experience as well. I've created a soundtrack to, um, to, to play down there. And it's uh, any analog synths it's uh, sound recordings, it's um, harp and flute. Um, and during the lockdown, something that occurred to me was that when our normal markers in time were taken away, our idea of time tend to, tended to warp and morph, and it almost felt in many ways as if time was folding in on itself. And during this time, I started working through a lot of my old musical material. I found some old cassette recordings of myself when I was 18, and some studio stuff I did in the 90s, and stuff I was recording now. So this sound recording, I've actually mixed together all the periods of my life. Sometimes, some tracks, I've got all three of me sort of playing together in a band from different parts of my life. And I thought this is, in a way, this is very fitting for a for an ambient soundtrack to a museum because museums are something that tends to fold time in on itself anyway here we are in the museum i just just before i open the actual museum just like to give a few thanks to people who made this whole project um possible first of all binks we worked like an absolute trooper doing everything we've had a We've, we've had a crazy month working till silly hours doing all sorts of crazy stuff and lots of most most of doing a museum is about DIY and carrying objects it's uh, all the actual curation bit that's probably about a couple of percent of it most of it is grunt work and you know couldn't couldn't done it without things and um Will and Rufus, thank you very much for the use of this space. It's absolutely, absolutely fantastic. I would like to thank um, the Wisdoms, uh, um, Dave and, and Lisa, who unfortunately aren't here today. Oh, they are! Way the Wisdoms, brilliant. Um, helped me with all the techie stuff. When I say helped me with the techie stuff, they did all the techie stuff and tried to teach me how to do it, which is a bit like teaching a monkey to use a typewriter. But I think they did very well. Lisa did my website. Um, 
Dave helped me with the sounds, and Lisa, also blacksmith, helped reconstruct the witch's cradle, which is down there, which is an old piece from um, Cecil's museum back in the 60s. Um, I'd like to, Tim Shaw, um, fantastic sculpture down there, amazing piece down there, you've got to go and see it, bringing the old os to life. Um, Gemma Gary, um, Ted Munns, and Rory Tatigo. I'd like to thank them all for um, loans and uh, donations of artefacts. Um, Simon Costin, as I mentioned, for, um, for the um, cabinets. And all those other people who've unwittingly helped me along the way. So I'd like to declare the museum open. was a quarry studio production made in a secret location in a quarry somewhere in west cornwall words music sounds and production steve patterson, patterson. patterson. engineering patterson. editing production and additional voice dave wisdom 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 additional voice website design and brainwaves lisa wisdom 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 if you want to support us, you can do so on patreon.com slash antiquarianadventuresinmetareality. For further information, look us up on stevepattersonantiquarian.com. We look forward to joining you for further antiquarian, antiquarian adventures in meta reality.